You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Today we are finishing up a mini-series of three weeks uh, on the theme of stewardship. We've called it Entrusted. Uh, next week's family, uh, family worship Sunday, we're, we're all together for that one. That happens four times a year on the fifth Sundays of the year. And then the week after that, first week of February, we will launch into Ecclesiastes, and we'll spend a few months uh, walking through that book, which if you've never read it, um, why don't you put on a seatbelt, and why don't you go ahead and read it before we get started? And uh, it is a, it's an eye-opener. It is a, uh, it's an enigma at points. Um, what, what does this mean? Uh, why is this in the Bible? Uh, what, what's going on here? And so, but I think it's going to, I think by the time we finish the book, my prayer is that some of us will say that that's one of my very favorite books of the Bible, that God really shows us the meaning of life and the purpose of life in that book. Um, this last week, I read a story out of the Washington Post that moved me. It's a very simple story, very simple, not dramatic, very mundane, and yet I, I just found myself touched by the story. It's a story of a man named Hody Childress. Hody Childress was a farmer, and he lived off a of meager retirement savings in the small town of Geraldine, Alabama. A number of years ago, Hody walked into Geraldine Drugs and pulled aside the owner, Brooke Walker, to ask if there were families in town who couldn't afford to pay for their medications. I told him, yes, unfortunately that happens often, recalled Walker. And he handed me a $100 bill, all folded up, and he told her to use it for anyone who couldn't afford their prescriptions. He said, don't tell a soul where this money came from. If they ask, just tell them. It's a blessing from the Lord, she said. The following month, Childress returned to hand Walker another folded up $100 bill. And he repeated this every month for years until he became too weak late last year from the effects of pulmonary disease. Childress died on New Year's Day this New Year's Day, at 80. As the years went on, Childress's $100 bills added up to thousands of dollars, uh, said the uh, pharmacist, noting that, he, uh, that she was usually able to help two people a month who didn't have insurance or whose benefits wouldn't cover their prescriptions. He confided in his daughter, Tanya Nix, about his pharmacy donations right before his death. He told me he'd been carrying a $100 bill to the pharmacist in Geraldine the first of each month and that he didn't want to know who she helped with it. He just wanted to bless people with it. Her father was a humble man who lived on a very small retirement account, but he never hesitated to help. He didn't spend a lot of money in his life, but he always gave what he could, she said, if he took you out to eat, you better be quick to grab the ticket because he was paying for it. Nobody in the family, including Hody's wife, knew about the monthly trips to the Geraldine drugstore. 
At Hody Childress's funeral, when people in town learned what he had done to him, done for them, they were stunned. His daughter said, she, I heard from people who said they'd been going through a rough time and the prescriptions were paid for when they went to pick them up, she said, recalling that one woman who didn't have $600 for an EpiPen for her son, she wrote to me saying she never knew who had helped her until the day of the funeral for her dad. She said it brought her tremendous relief as a mother and she couldn't thank Hody enough. Walker, the pharmacist, recalled when a single mom and her daughter both needed a medication that their insurance didn't cover. When Walker paid for the medicine out of the children's fund and handed the woman the prescription with the receipt attached, the woman burst into tears. People in Geraldine who hoped to keep that legacy going are now dropping by the drugstore with donations. Recalling at the Hody Childress Fund, and we're going to keep it going as long as as the community and Hody's family want to keep it alive. When I thought about that, I thought, why was I so moved by that story? It's it's not a huge amount of money, unless you have very little, like Hody did. And it's not like it cured cancer or, or, you know, uh, helped restore an entire city in an urban area or something like that. It, it, was, it was a small thing, but it had deep impact in people's lives. And, and what I realized that moved me about this story was that it's a story of stewardship. Because he said to the pharmacist, if they ask where it comes from, tell them it's the blessing of the Lord. He understood that it was the Lord's money and that he wanted to use the Lord's money in the Lord's way, that the Lord had provided for him, and thus he wanted to provide for others. I was even surprised for the Washington Post that there was that much reference to his faith. In real life, it was probably much stronger than what I just read. I'm sure it got edited. But how powerful that was. And the passage of Scripture we're going to view today is a passage about giving. It's about extravagant giving. And if the story of Hody's giving touches a heart, touches our hearts about giving what God has entrusted to us as stewards, well, the story we're about to read from First Chronicles is, well, it's a giving story on steroids. It is an amazing story of giving that equally affects our hearts. Uh, we're going to look at First Chronicles 29, which is a high point in the reign of David. This records David's preparation to build the temple, a great palace for God, for the worship of God. And uh, he says the task is great because God is great, and he's preparing by collecting money to build the temple. Now, his son Solomon will build the temple, but he wants to prepare, use his leverage, use his finances, use his kingship, uh, his influence to raise money to be able to build this temple. Oh, if you're a guest, by the way, we're not in a building fund. Uh, We're finishing a project that's already paid for behind her. So I thought I should probably say that because somebody goes, okay, where's the ask? There is no ask, okay? You you just let the Lord speak to you in the text. But I thought, oh, a guest is probably going, oh, I see where this is going. Uh, Tell a tearjerker about a guy giving prescriptions and pretty soon they're going to be grabbing my wallet. No, that's not what we're doing at all here. That's not what we're doing. I just thought I better say that. So David, at the beginning of 1 Chronicles 29, he gives all this gold. He, he actually gives the temple treasury, and then he gives his personal treasury, which is the backup for a king. 
So he basically has removed all protection and all, uh, for himself. He, he's, this is risky giving. He's emptied everything. It's a risky generosity. Scholars say that probably the value of the temple in today's dollars would be in the billions. Looking at the amount of gold that was given uh, and precious jewels that were given by David. He then asked the people to give willingly, and the leaders give this, these incredible amounts of money as well. But he says, he doesn't just say, give your money. He says, who will follow me in consecrating themselves today? He's saying, so who's going to devote themselves, not just your money, who's going to give their hearts and their lives to God? And the people give willingly and freely and joyfully. It's this amazing scene with literally tons of gold being given, all kinds of uh, other uh, precious metals and precious stones. Uh, and David could have, he could have taxed everybody to pay for it, pay for it. He, he could have used regular donations that were given to pay for it. But he, he did this thing where he wanted everybody to give freely. And there's this extravagant generosity. And then after this, with everybody standing around looking at stacks of, uh, of materials and valuables worth potentially in the billions, uh, David prays a prayer. And this is what he prays, 1 Chronicles 29, verses 9 through 20. Listen to God's holy word. Then the people rejoiced, this is after the offering, because they had given willingly for the whole heart, with a whole heart, and they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven, in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you are exalted as head above all. Um, Both riches and honor, I'm sorry, come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and you, and of your own have we, have, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners. All of our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there's no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we've provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and all your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. David is amazed at the offering, the the sacrificial giving that everybody has donated. But he's even more amazed by God. 
And in this prayer, he's pouring out his heart to God. And here's the sense of the prayer. David is stunned by the privilege of giving to God. That's really a big idea in the passage, that when we give to the Lord, we're we're not to be burdened by the obligation. We're to be stunned by the privilege. And that's exactly his heart here. And, and, And in this prayer, I think there are three motivations for giving what the Lord has given to us. The first one is, David is motivated by his vision of God. Giving is to be motivated by a vision of God. He begins the whole passage by describing the grandeur of God. We read it as the call to worship today. Yours, O Lord, verse 11, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth are yours. Yours is the kingdom and you are exalted as head above all. So he looks at the incredible wealth given and he thinks about the greatness of God. He says, Lord, yours is the greatness. All power belongs to you. Uh, All glory belongs to you. He deflects all glory from himself. He's just given tremendously. He he reflects all glory from himself, himself, all glory from the people, and he directs it to God. Victory is yours. God is always the God of victory. And in this case, perhaps God is the victory over human selfishness or human greed that that people have freely and joyfully given. God's is the victory. Majesty belongs to you. That's speaking of God's kingship. He he goes beyond this. Not only does greatness and power belong to God, but in fact, all that is in the heavens and earth are yours. You own it all. It's like he's just saying, God, we're giving today, but this is all about you. He's not captured with the act of, of sacrifice of the people of Israel. He's captured with the God for whom this is given, the God who is worthy of all that we have and all that we are. And he prays this prayer of worship. He says, not only do you own it all, but you rule it all. Yours is the kingdom. You are head above all. When he says you rule, you rule above all, that's, that's referring to God's sovereignty. We talk about God's sovereignty. It's a chief value of our faith, that God rules over everyone and everything. And that's what he's saying. You reign preeminently. David's giving here flows from his understanding of God's rulership, that he rules over all. I think the powerful point of this whole prayer is that understanding God's nature motivates his generous giving. He gives generously for the glory of God because he has a great vision of the nature of God, who God is. He's not just dispassionately rattling off a bunch of descriptions of God, your power, your glory. No, no, these are things that have stirred his affection, the grandeur of God. He's got a big God, a big vision of God. The grandeur of God has, has affected his behavior. It's driven his giving as it has the people of God. And so he is, he, he, it's breathtaking what has happened, but it, he just sees this wonderful nature of God. He sees the rule of God. You are sovereign. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, it affects him. It doesn't make him a contentious Calvinist. It makes him a fanatical giver. When he sees the sovereignty of God, he goes fanatical with giving because God rules over all. 
You deserve it all. You own it all. And by the way, if you gave me this, I can trust you. I can give freely, trusting that you're sovereign. You see how sovereignty is tied to giving because the one who's provided everything I have will continue to do so because he will always rule it all. Sometimes our, 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 our stinginess, it, it, it's, well, it's almost always rooted in the reality that we don't have a big picture of God and a big picture of the gospel in that moment. But it's also rooted in the fact that we don't know if God's going to provide, that is, is God really sovereign over all? His giving corresponds to his vision of God, and that's always the case. So let me ask you, and let me ask me, if you look at your giving over the last year, what does it reveal about your vision of God? Very simple. If we just look at what I made last year and what I gave last year, what does it reveal about how I see God? Because they're always connected. My, my vision of the nature of God is tied to how I give. If you look at your generosity towards others in the past year, what does it say about your understanding of God? The way I've treated others with what I have, the way I've given, the way I've been hospitable, the way I've used my resources to bless others, what does it say about my understanding of God. I, I want to argue that it will, it will be a true barometer on my heart and my spirituality. Verse 13, he says, Now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. He thanks God. After this giving, he's thanking the Lord. After the sacrificial giving and a bold praise to God, he thanks God. What does your giving over the last year, your generosity, communicate about your gratitude to God? They're tied. Certainly in this chapter, they're, they're imminently tied. When we really see God for who he is, we will not only be awestruck, but we'll be compelled by his grace. We'll want to be more like him. And we're perhaps never more like God than when we are giving. We're perhaps never... Imitate our Father more than when we give sacrificially, for it is God who gave his one and only Son for us. God is the ultimate giver, all caps, uh, huge font, bold letters, more exclamation, infinity exclamation points. God is the ultimate giver. We're all here today because God gave sacrificially. We're all here today because Jesus uh, laid down his life, the ultimate cost for another one. I've heard someone they say, you know, that Christians, as Christians, when we got to eat, we should always pick up the check because Jesus picked up the check for all of us. That sounds cheesy, but it, it connects the gospel to what I do at the end of the meal. Sit there and kind of look uh, that awkward moment where it sits in between, or is it a race to grab it? If it's multiple Christians, they should be in a fight. Uh, it should get ugly. Everybody should be reaching in. Chips flying, salsa knocked over. Everybody's grabbing the check. Or sometimes somebody's sneaky, if you've ever done this, that, you know, they sneak the card. Oh, i got to go to the bathroom, and they got a, a Christian move, lie. And then they <laughs> go sneak the card to the, uh, you know, to the server. And you come back, oh, I'll take it. Oh, it's already been paid. Or have you ever been in a restaurant? I've actually been in a restaurant where someone from the church was there and 
when into the meal and anything else? No, just the check. Oh, you know what? Somebody at another table over here already covered your your meal. I've actually had that that happen before. So that 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 kind of gener- all I'm saying is that it can, generosity is connected to our doctrine and what we believe about the nature of God and about the nature of the gospel. Jesus Christ dying as our substitute and our place. Cheesy saying he picked up the check for all of us, but a lot of truth. And that's what David's saying. Based on who you are, God, we gave freely and joyfully, the text says. Well, not only is he motivated by a vision of God, but he's motivated by the provision of God, the provision of God as well. Look at verse 14. Who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. He realizes his own insignificance, his own dependence, And there's like this resizing that's taken place where he sees himself as he really is. He sees God as he really is. And in light of God's indescribable greatness, David simply says, having just overseen the greatest offering in the history of uh, Israel, arguably the greatest offering in the history of any uh, religious gathering anywhere, perhaps, I don't know. But in, in this moment, he doesn't say, wow, Great, we did it. We did it. He didn't pull out the thermometer with the red all the way at the top. We did it. Give yourself a nice round of applause. You know what he says? Who am I? What am I even doing here? Who are we? That God Almighty, the one who spoke everything into existence, has provided all this abundance for us so that now we can give for the worship for this temple, for the worship of God. Who are we? Who is my people that we should be able to give? I mean, the only reason they could offer willingly is that God graciously provided them. The only reason they know God is grace. It was God who picked Abraham out of nowhere, likely a moon worshiper. He didn't know God. He didn't know the first thing. He's an idolater. And God picks Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a people. And from your people, I'm going to give you a land. And he's given them that land. They're in the land given them. They're building the temple that God's provided for. This is all of grace. And that's why he's stunned by the privilege. Jesus, I mean, uh, David's, atti- David's attitude, David's attitude is not, I can't believe we got to do this. David's attitude is, I am stunned that I get to be a part of this. And so he's asking, who am I to even be here? Who are we to do this? Uh, For God, he's amazed by it all. Who am I to give to the Lord? You know, I think we can always discern the voice of the flesh and the voice of the spirit by what kind of questions come into our mind. The voice of the flesh will ask, why do I have to give? The voice of the flesh will ask, well, what if I give and then I need that, what I gave next week or next month or next year. The flesh will ask, why, why, is, why are they asking me to give? The spirit will say, who am I to know God? What am I even doing here among the people of God, hearing the word of God, singing praise to God, about to be invited to his table? Who am I to be a part of this? Why am I so richly blessed now, I know there are folks in the room that are tight, 
Not everybody is equally, has equal resources. But on a, on a world plane and on a historic plane, all of us are, are wealthy. Why am I so richly blessed? Why do I get to be a part? The Spirit will ask, why do I get to be a part of the people of God? What a, what a grace gift. The Spirit will ask, how can I honor God with what I have? The Holy Spirit will always ask us questions that get us back to God, that get us back to the gospel. The flesh will always ask questions that are fearful, that are holding on to what we have, that are worried about not having enough, about questioning the motives of anybody who asks for something from us. Not only is it an overwhelming privilege to give, but then he realizes that it all just comes from God anyway. Verse 14, after all, said, for all things come from you. So who am I and who are we that we can offer willingly? What are we even doing here, giving all this? That's amazing. And then he says, all things come from you. And of your own, we have given you. It's humbling because he's saying, you own everything and we're just giving you what is already yours. There's a semi-famous quote by C.S. Lewis that addresses this. I think it's very helpful. He says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything good or giving anything, doing anything of God or giving anything to God, I'll tell you what it's really like. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, Give me sixpence, C.S. Lewis is British, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he's pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good in the transaction. (laughs) Isn't that true? It's good. I believe the Lord is blessed. I believe the Lord is honored But we're really not doing him a favor. We're not really giving him something he didn't have. He wasn't wringing his hands wondering how he could accomplish his will. And then all of a sudden, your check showed up and God is like, yes, I can do it. No, we're giving him what is already his. It is when you give your kids money and you hide your eyes while they pick something out and then pretend you don't see it at the checkout. And that's what it is. It honors the Lord, but he ain't gaining anything personally, ultimately, out of it except the glory that is due him. Verse 15, David identifies his people. This is very curious. After saying that, um, he's motivated by God's provision. After saying that, in verse 15, he says, We're strangers before you and sojourners um, as all of our fathers were. Our days on this earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Now, this is really strange. In this moment, they are God's people in God's land that he's provided, the promised land, building a temple for God. And he's referring to them like they are Gentiles. He's saying, we're strangers. That was the kind of language that was used for a non-Israelite. Really strange language. And then he says, we're sojourners. 
We're just here passing through. Yet this is the land where they are rooted. This is their home. It is the foreign person who travels that is the sojourner. So what is, what is up with these, this kind of odd language that David uses in the prayer? Well, he's simply making the point that they are in no more, they are no more owners of God's land than the non-Israelite. It is God's. He's allowing them to use it. He's given it to them, but it is really God's. And we are all in the truest sense sojourners. We are here for a very short period of time passing through. And, and this is a great identity for us to embrace. I, I, this is, I don't really own anything. I'm a stranger even in my own land because it's God's land. So I really don't own anything. And what I do have is on loan. I'm just loose. I hold it loosely because I'm only here for a little while and then with the Lord forever. It's a, it's a powerful identity that he prays. I'm sure somebody opened their eye in that prayer and said, did, what did he just say? Did he just call us Gentiles? You know, because that's how he is praying here. When he looks at the overwhelming offering that's a provision of the Lord given back to him, he makes one other observation, verse 17. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I freely offered all these things. And now I've seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. Here's what he's saying. God tests the heart. I know that you, God, test the heart. God tests the heart. And what he entrusts to us is always a test of the heart. Now, 1 Chronicles 29 is obviously in a time of great economic prosperity for the people of Israel, that they could provide all of this. And so the test of Israel's heart in this moment, the test of King David's heart while he's at the peak of his rule, is the test of prosperity. It's the test of prosperity. Randy Alcorn, who's written quite a bit on stewardship, The Treasure Principle is one of his books. He's he's written quite a bit. He he said, my observation is that 95% of Christians will pass the test of adversity. And my same experience is that 95% of Christians will fail the test of prosperity because we tend to hang on to what we have It's a more difficult test to pass, the test of prosperity, um, because we frequently forget the Lord. Right before Israel goes into the Holy Land in Deuteronomy, that's what what Moses tells the people. Look, when you get in there and you have all these houses you didn't build, uh, you know, vineyards you didn't plant, when you have all this abundance, don't forget the Lord, because abundance will tempt us to forget the Lord, to to be self-sufficient, to forget what he's given us and done for us, and to somehow think that we're doing it for ourselves. God tests. He gives us, he provides, and then he tests. And here, in this case, they, they passed the test of prosperity here in this instance with flying colors because they give freely and joyously. So this prayer teaches us that we're to be, our giving's to be motivated by a vision of God, It's to be motivated by the provision of God. And finally, it's to be motivated by vision of the future. In verses 18 and 19, David closes the prayer by asking God for two future blessings. He says, number one, 
Uh, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. So he's saying, God, this is a magical moment. This is unbelievable. We are all celebrating. People are celebrating giving what they have, giving their valuables. David's saying, I've even removed my personal security, my personal treasure, uh, you know, emptied out the kingdom treasury to build this. So this is a moment of great worship. Now, God, just preserve this moment forever. We've all had those moments. If you're married, it's a moment with your spouse that is so good. You're like, could this just continue forever? Or you have that moment where all your children, if you have children, are getting along, sharing, saying kind things to one another. They're even embracing and expressing your loving. Could we just freeze this moment, this rare moment? Could we just freeze this and be this family uh, forever? And that's what he's saying here. Lord, would you continue this, this sense of vision of you, awareness of you, grace in our hearts, propelled to give, would you motivate us to this? Would you help us to keep asking, who am I? See, we don't ask, who am I? We ask, why me? When stuff's happening, why me, oh Lord? When we should be asking, who am I, Lord, to even know you? So Lord, would you keep us asking the right question? Who am I and who are we? And then secondly, his second prayer about the future is that he says, may the next generation have a whole heart for you. Now, he speaks of Solomon, verse 19, grant to Solomon a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, performing all that he may build the palace for which I made provision. So clearly, he's praying for Solomon. But the king represented the people. David's heart is certainly not, may Solomon follow you with the whole heart and may everybody else serve the Baals. No, that's not his prayer. He wants everybody. May everybody have a whole heart. Grant them. It's a gift. Grant is gift language, grace language. Grant to Solomon a whole heart that he may keep your commandments and statutes, performing them all that he may build the palace. So that for the next generation, my son and the others, David is praying, may, may they have a whole heart for you like we do in this moment. It's not just this moment. Lord, we want to look to the future, and we ask that you would grant a heart of devotion to the next generation. And this is our prayer as well. This is our theme this year, uh, which has been to reach and equip the next generation. It's to put our eyes on the next generation. It's to equip parents and pray for them and to pray for children. And that's our prayer for the next generation. Listen, um, we, don't, we don't think of buildings like they do, the temple. God uniquely dwelt in the temple. For us, in the new covenant, God dwells among his people. So the spirit of God is in the people of God. Um, but we do have a dwelling where we meet as well. God's not uniquely present here till everybody shows up. Um, so this building isn't holy in some unique sense. But there is a real sense in which the first generation that planted this church, and some of you were here from the beginning or you've joined in very early in the beginning, uh, there is a sense in which the first generation pioneered something, where the first generation celebrated. I can remember the day we found out we were getting land given to us to build right here. A profound heritage, a profound gift from the Lord. And we had such celebrating. And that really did, in a similar way, 
motivate many people to give generously to, for us to move here to do the ministry that we have done. And our generation's fund is about let's get this paid off so the next generation doesn't carry that, but uh, it's part of it. But the next generation is free to use resources um, in ways that maybe we haven't been so far. But our prayer is that the next generation would have a vision of God. The next generation would be gripped by the gospel more than we are that their pioneering work would far exceed ours, that they would take the gospel not only to themselves and for their families, but they would take the gospel in a way penetrating the surrounding folks in this area like we've never been able to do, that they would take the baton and that they would excel us in every way. Lord, we pray the same prayer. Would you give them a whole heart? Would they excel us in godliness? Would they excel us in love for the scripture? Would they excel us in love for one another? Would they excel us in taking the mission throughout the city of Frisco, throughout our country, and throughout the world? Would they take the gospel to the far reaches of the world? Now, I'm not tapping out yet for this generation. But I'm just saying, may the next generation exceed us. Would you give them a whole heart? Would they see what you have provided us, even where we sit today? Would they see what you have provided? Would they see what you have done through the first generation in this church of how you've reached people, restored marriages, uh, blessed families, saved singles, all that you've done in our midst, built community, given us a voice into the city with the gospel? Would they see what all you've provided and would they take that and run faster and farther than we ever could? That's really our prayer and that's what he prays at the end. In this moment, when this great thing has happened, he's saying, yeah, but the next generation. We're looking to what Solomon is called to do and we're looking for that people. May they be in awe of God. May the next generation be stunned by the privilege of it all. May you keep them, Lord, and hold them. That's what he's praying. Well, how do we apply a passage like this? I've preached three messages on stewardship, and um, I've had one application every time, which is attend the resetting your money mindset. I think that's what it's called, seminar. Um, I tried to preach the text and preach the heart, um, but we need help to do these things, to live as stewards. I didn't preach about giving until today, but to give, to use what the Lord has have us, to have discernment, gives us to use, to have discernment, to make choices with what he provides, our talents, our time, and our treasures. We need God's grace, and in particularly, in particular, our resources. We need help. And so, um, you go on our website and sign up. It's this Saturday, um, and you can get all the details there. But there, here's the reality. We've had vision the last three weeks, but a vision is useless unless we put wheels on it, unless we actually take some steps. So may, may the Lord help us to attend that and learn. Secondly, I want to ask you today, how are you doing with the test of prosperity? God clearly tests our hearts, and I think he calls us to evaluate how we're doing with the test that he brings our way. I do think the test of adversity is harder in my own life. It's when I am going through hard times that I am crying out. My prayer life is way better in times of difficulty than, when, than times of leisure and ease when things are going well. So I do think it's the case. You know, a lot of people move to our area, and I love our area. Absolutely love it. Love Frisco. Glad to be here. But a lot of people move here because they think it's a safe place. I want to say this city is a dangerous place. 
it's a dangerous place for your soul. We live in a place that is dangerous to our soul because we live in a land of abundance. This is not reality. That's my concern for the next generation, that they grow up thinking this is reality. This is not reality. The way, we, the way people live, the way we live in this city, it is not reality over history. It is not reality on the scale of the world today. It's not even reality in the U.S. Uh, the median household income in this city is, is one of the highest of any cities in the country. We, we, live, in, uh, you know, we, we live in an area where there is s- such high consumption that we constantly look around and say, I need more, I need better, I need newer. Because that's, that's all we see. That's all we see around us. There is the pressure and the temptation to keep up because we always look around and we live in this place. It's so easy to believe that, that, you, that, that you are what you have. You are what you earn. Your happiness and joy is tied to what you can afford or to how much you have socked away to protect you. And that's just not true. The flesh looks out and interprets, I must hold on. I must get better. Oh man, I don't have very much. We don't think on a world scale. We don't, because we live in this bubble called North Dallas, Frisco, Texas. And the Spirit says to us, give. But it is hard to hear the voice of the Spirit in the land of plenty. It's just hard. And so we live in a maybe safe place physically, but we live in a dangerous place for the soul. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to focus on you and your nature and your gospel, the one who gave, help us to focus on Christ, the one who gave himself for us. And we're going to turn this morning and receive communion with this in mind. The band can come, the ushers can come. We're going to receive communion today. And I want to offer this this to you. As we receive communion, let's simply repent and ask the Lord's forgiveness where we have not been generous with our friends and with others and with those in need, where we're not given generously to the Lord, where we... Um, where we've grasped and held, where we've been fearful and worried and greedy rather than trusting the sovereign Lord. To the degree we read this passage and say, that's not my attitude when it comes to giving to others. I'm not freely, willingly, joyfully saying, this is amazing. I don't have this, this gripping vision of God and this awareness of his provision. I'm not asking, who am I? I'm asking, how much? If that's us today, then let's, let's ask the Lord's forgiveness. And then as we receive the elements, let's take comfort in that our status with God is not based on how much we give, but it's based on the one who gave it all for us, that we're securing God and that we can trust him. And let that motivate us to obedience. May the gospel motivate us to sacrificial giving. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.